Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the Her Story Speaks podcast. Season 3, and nearly 70 episodes later, I honestly can't even believe I'm saying that. When I started the podcast just over two years ago, I had no idea what was in store, or really what I was doing for that matter. I only knew that God put it on my heart to start a platform for women to share their stories. Hard, inspiring, challenging, yet Jesus-filled stories. I've always known that stories have power, and by sharing and listening to the stories of others, lives are changed and hope can be found. I know now that this is even truer than I once believed, because of how much my own life and view has been deeply changed and challenged by the women I've met through this podcast and the stories I've had the privilege to share. I also hear from listeners how the women's stories they've heard on this podcast have impacted them. And that is all the motivation I need to continue sharing women's stories. So, for those of you that are new to this space or haven't listened before, welcome. For those of you who have stuck with me in this journey, thank you for your encouragement and listening years. There are so many podcasts out there vying for your attention, and your choice to listen to the Her Story Speaks podcast is not lost on me. As we enter Season 3 of the podcast... The theme that has weighed most heavy on my heart is beauty in the broken. I know I'm not the only one who feels like their life and life as we know it is broken in a million pieces in 2020. But I also know there is beauty to be found in our broken, hard stories. This season, I'm truly humbled to bring you an incredible lineup of ladies, all with beautiful stories amid the brokenness of life. So I encourage you, pull up a seat, Grab a cup of coffee and listen with an open mind. Truth is, there's still nothing like a story, even a broken one, to bring us together in humanity and oneness as our lives are beautifully woven together. My guest today is a woman whose story and life's work exemplifies what it means to find beauty in the brokenness of life. Nicole Lim is a speaker, educator, and consultant on leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. She's the founder and international director of Freely and Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping survivors and advocates to lead in ending sexual violence through their rewritten stories. With a background in photography and filmmaking, Nicole has the ability to see the world through paradox, which provides surprising insight into our world full of pain and joy, brokenness and beauty, despair and hope, suffering and love. Nicole's book, Liberation is Here, shares her story with honest introspection, capturing, empowering, heart-wrenching stories that have transcended into her experience. So listen in today. In our conversation, Nicole shares her heart and story of finding beauty in the broken pieces. Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. Like most all of my guests, I'm really just honored to have you here today. Um, Your book called Liberation is here. It releases September 22nd, and we're going to talk about that today because that book is a big part of your story, and we're going to you're just going to share and be vulnerable with what this book means to you and your story that's intertwined with it. But before we do that, can you just share a little bit about who you are, your day-to-day, where you live? Yeah. So thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited for all you're doing and just leveraging the voices of women. I am a third generation Chinese American born and raised in the Bay Area. Um, My family's from San Francisco. We currently live in Richmond, California. And I've been, yeah, born and raised in the Bay and living and working in Kenya and Zambia for the past 10 years. So I travel back and forth between those two countries quite frequently, but I am based in the Bay and um I believe it's one of the best cities in the world. It's beautiful. <laughs> we were there. We were there a year ago. Um, did like a whole California tour thing with my family. Did San Francisco, right. Yosemite, all of that. But how are you doing right now, though, with the fires and the smoke? Yeah. And- oh, it's mm. been quite terrible. The AQI has been over 200 for the past couple of weeks, and so every day I'm just looking out the window, like wondering, can I go out yet? And not yet, unfortunately. So we're just, yeah, hoping that firefighters stay safe and that. Things will subside soon. Some of my family members have been affected, though, so that's been quite tough, just kind of waiting for the news to see if they would be evacuated. 
Yeah, on top of everything else that 2020 Correct. has brought and now this. Right. And um, some of the pictures look pretty horrific, just especially knowing what a beautiful area of the country that is. So, um, yeah. okay, so let's go ahead and dive into your story. Like most of my guests, if we can start off with your childhood, because I just think so much of your origin story plays a big part in your passion and where God led you to where you are right now. So if you don't mind, just start us off with your childhood. You share a little bit of it in your book. So I guess as much or little as you want and go back as far as you want, like your grandparents, their, their story plays an important part of your story. And um, so, yeah, if you want to even start with them. Sure. So, um, like I said, I was born and raised in the Bay Area and being a third generation um, descendant of immigrants, there are a lot of expectations that are placed on you, especially uh, coming to a place that is supposedly land of opportunity and freedom. And as I grew up, I thought that all of these freedoms and opportunities were afforded to me. But as I grew up, I realized that some of those opportunities are afforded to some and not all. And so that became, um, I guess, the more uh, the reality at the forefront for me where I realized, okay, if not all opportunities are provided equally across the spectrum for all people, then what does that mean for me? And coming from a background where um, the Chinese were excluded from immigrating um, and they were used for cheap labor and there's been a lot of especially racial tension ever since the beginning of uh, America. Um, We have experienced a lot of those issues um, more so in the past and because of things like the model minority myth and um, uh, stronger generations being able to immigrate and create access and wealth for the next generation of communities. Now being third generation, I don't see as much as the struggle as my grandparents did yet because I could still understand and hear the stories of what they've experienced due to the oppression of America. could get a sense right and so that kind of sparked the struggle of what does it look like to be uh, to experience the poverty and oppression of my grandparents yet live in uh, a third generation experience where we can now have more opportunities afforded to us and what does that mean in terms of my responsibility and how I contribute to the world and traditionally that would mean um getting a high paying job to support your family so that you stay out of poverty because we came from there, we don't wanna go back. So therefore achieve financial success and wealth and earn property and earn an income and do the best that you can to ensure that your lineage is successful and that you achieve a significant success in the corporate sphere, uh, corporate or medical sphere usually. And uh, so that's the expectation growing up. However, because of this, um, very strong sense of responsibility that I felt not just to pursue cultural expectation, but to contribute back to society where equal opportunity wasn't available to them. That was uh, kind of a tug of war between my family and I. Um, and so even though my family maybe may not have quite understood the direction that I was going in my career, I still had my grandparents to look up to where my grandfather escaped uh, communist China, um, came to um, escape to Hong Kong, then went to Canada, then came Came down to San Francisco and when he retired from being a pastor in San Francisco he actually went back to communist China to um, serve people in the hills tribes and that was really interesting because we were taught you know don't go back to the poverty where you came from yet my grandfather did that and so as he was ministering out there um, with uh, the Salvation Army organization, he would send back photos to me of the people that he was serving in these villages. And I was so inspired by um, his photos because his stories always represented and leveraged the dignity of the people there. And as I would read the stories and look at the images, um, I always felt like, wow, how come these images aren't shown in mainstream media? How come I'm not consuming those same images and stories um, in the news and on TV and in movies? And He sent me this one photo of a little girl who was around the same age that I was, and he titled this photo, She Reminds Me of You. And it wasn't until a decade later where I recognized those stories that I hear from him and the people that he serves could have easily been my story had um, our families not immigrated, had um, I been a victim of gender side because I'm a woman, had um, the opportunities for me being a woman or being a woman of color not been provided for me, her story could have easily been mine. And so I just felt this really intense um, 
desire to try to figure out, okay, if we have experienced some sense of freedom, uh, what does it mean to provide freedom for all? And what could I do to contribute to that freedom? And so that's what kind of propelled me into my work of ending sexual violence in Kenya and Zambia. Yeah, and you go into more detail of that in your book. I mean, it's just very powerful, um, those images of your grandfather that he sent you in his photography and how deeply that that impacted you. Um, Another thing you bring up in your book is just growing up in your culture that you were taught as a, as a woman, as a girl to suppress your feelings and keep quiet and that internal struggle. Would you share just a little bit of that? Because I think that kind of ties into your later liberation and expressing emotions and that. So just maybe that childhood expectation, bringing, growing up in the home that you grew up in. Yeah, I think uh, being born a girl, there's a set um, set of unspoken, in some families it's spoken, some families it's unspoken, for our culture it's mostly unspoken, set of expectations of how you should behave, especially in public, how you should appear, especially in public. And even if we look at mainstream media, how women, especially Asian women, are expected to be docile and submissive. All throughout uh, the uh, trajectory of Hollywood, you either have the sexy vixen, who's a Lucy Liu character, or you have the submissive docile docile um, housewife, um, housewife or caretaker, child caretaker. So if we're only seeing these either or images of Asian women on the screen, that becomes the cultural perception of who you are. And then within the culture, that becomes um, the mandate or the expectation for how you should perform or how you should behave. And um, for our family being a faith-based family and uh, a family where even a lot of women in our family are leaders in the church even though we were leaders in the church and able to preach on stage there's still a way that we had to behave and how we had to dress and how we had to um, ensure that we uh, achieve this image of perfection in public and that image of perfection often means uh, a controlling of the emotions. And so I grew up believing that emotions were not meant to be felt, but they were meant to be controlled. And so if there was any anger or any grief or any even joy, that it should still remain at um, a certain level to not bring attention to yourself, because bringing attention to oneself is not, uh, not something that's valued in our culture. Um, in fact, we should be bringing attention to other people and serving other people and not having people look at us too much. And so any outbreak of any type of emotion would be considered um, shameful. And so growing up with that um, understanding where often I would be looked at if I had any outbursts as a child, I would be looked at and, and they would say, that's not ladylike. And so being being ladylike meant being quiet. And I was a very outspoken, rambunctious um, child that would also often voice my opinion and also voice my anger, uh, which was usually the forefront of my emotions in that in that time period and even now. Um, but that was not seen as something that was uh, dignified um, in our family system. And so working through what is what are the gifts of anger? What is the intent of anger? And what does it mean being a woman of expressing anger and expressing emotion in a way that um, leverages the dignity of the female body, but also gives voice to the injustices that we experience as women and as a society as a whole. Yeah, and I love how you intertwine that part of your story with when you start meeting these girls that we'll talk about and just hearing their horrific stories and um, the emotions. And then you also talk about anger later in the book too, about how that anger can be a righteous anger from God and express. And I think that's such an important message, especially for me as a mom of daughters, like it's okay to make noise, to be angry, to be loud. Um, Another part I want to ask you about your childhood before we dive into um, kind of the meat of, of the book and the story there is you mentioned your faith journey and, or you didn't mention your faith journey. You mentioned your upbringing, like in the church and being what a Christian meant. So can you talk a little bit just maybe about your faith growing up and if that was an important part of your life or your parents or your upbringing, um, just kind of the role that played maybe for your seeking justice. 
Yeah, so faith was definitely a huge aspect of my family system growing up. My grandfather, whom I just talked about, he um, was a pastor in the Salvation Army for 35 years, which is actually a world, one of the world records in the Salvation Army organization. And he actually received one of the highest orders, uh, one of the highest awards from the general um, for his long lasting service. And um, because of that legacy, also there was high pressure to uh, be, again, be that perfect family and appear perfect on the external front um, to live up to that family legacy. And so growing up, I think I did definitely feel that pressure of what does it mean to look perfect? But then as I grew further into my adulthood, I began to see what were the gifts of his ministry that I learned from and adapt it and take it on as my own. And so what, what ministry looked like definitely shifted for me from being doing something that looks good to being internal heart change and transformation and actually transforming the inner life and the inner wounds so that we can provide healing for ourselves as we also heal the world. I, I just feel like that's, that's like a lot more sustainable um, than the grind culture or the hustle culture that we were raised in and being in an organization as well uh, of the Salvation Army, um, which not many people know about my heritage, but I, I really attribute a lot of my learning to it. One of our slogans is heart to God, hand to man. So we are constantly thinking, okay, if we, if we love God, right, then that extends itself in, in service to others, which I strongly believe in. However, if that sense of service to other is, others is coming out of all obligation, or again, that desire or expectation to look perfect on the forefront, then it's not sustainable. And I've seen too many people burn out um, because they're not being sustained by so many things outside of love for God, right? And I think you can definitely love God and serve God with all your heart and also do the work of God without God in it. I've experienced that a lot in my ministry as well. And I actually talk about that story in the book too. And so even as that's um, really formed the foundation of the doing and the service that was very foundational and formational in, in how I grew up where I understood that um, service to others is a, uh, is the work that God calls us to do at the same time service to the poorest of the poor is also the work that God's called us to do. And that's very intent in the Salvation Army. Um, and what I learned further on when I went to, uh, school, I actually was Jesuit educated. So what I learned from the Jesuits was that together with service to God and love for God is an advocacy toward justice. And so combining theology now of justice um, and theology of liberation in our work of service to humanity, all of it works together. Um, and love for God is love for our neighbor who doesn't look like us and doesn't come from the same neighborhood as us oftentimes. And so what that means is uh, an expansion of what love and service looks like beyond um, beyond what's right in front of us. And I think that's the gift that I've learned in my work of advocating with survivors of sexual violence is that um, seeking justice requires all of us, heart, heart, mind, body, and soul. And how we pursue our work with God requires a love of um, a love of people, especially that don't come from the same back from the same backgrounds as us. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so powerful. Let's go ahead and get in then to your work and your passion and what it is. Um, so basically you started, you had that, like you shared earlier, you had that pressure to be, quote, successful in your family, a doctor or something like that. But you didn't go on that path. You went on the path of becoming a storyteller, a photographer at first. But then that led you into finding um, the organization Freely and Hope. So let's talk about you got into the career of photography and where that led you to, obviously a lot of places, but specifically Kenya that you talk about in the book, how you got there, why you were there. Yeah, so because I'm third generation, I think the expectation to only go toward the medical field, that was more for the second generation. So okay, that's what my sorry. Dad became. I, okay, gotcha. <laughs> I was so thin. So you didn't have that specific pressure. Okay. No. Yeah. So fortunately, I was actually able to pursue any career. My mom's actually an artist. So that kind of helped me yeah. go down the arts path okay, also. Gotcha. Um, so with that, because it's like, I can do anything, um, that really opened up my world to documentary filmmaking. And so okay. I started... 
traveling around the world, capturing stories of people in poverty, people living in oppression. Um, again, because in the media, I didn't see stories of people that looked like me. And if I did, their stories were always shown in a way where they seemed complicit to the poverty that they were in. Whereas from stories of my bloodline, I know that's not the case in that, um, and that there was so much strength and beauty and resilience uh, interwoven into the stories of poverty and oppression. And we weren't seeing the full picture. And so that's what I wanted my work as an international documentary filmmaker to do is to shed light on the both and the full picture and the full spectrum of the beauty of pain and joy and the beauty that's, that resides even in places of oppression. And so as I was working with many different international um, organizations, uh, capturing their stories, I felt like they were so incomplete. Like we were only telling the before and after um, because that's you know what you're required to do when you're doing a four minute highlight video for a nonprofit organization. Yet when I was sitting with these people, I, I heard such a spectrum of the story that it was more than just a before and after. And also because I would be hired by so many organizations, I would go in and out of countries, sometimes spending only, only a few days in these countries, interviewing multiple people. And I knew that also wasn't enough time to really sit with and to learn from and also to build trust with the people that I was capturing, yet that was my job, so I had to do it. And so as I would go in and out, in and out, I kept hearing story after story of issues of sexual violence being related to lack of access to education. That was new to me. In my family system, education is critical preferably get your master's. And if you really want honor in the family, then get your doctorates. Um, so for to hear stories of girls who were fighting against cultural expectation and fighting against their families so that they could go to high school even, that was just something that was beyond me. And so um, as I was traveling and hearing these stories, I felt like, why am I lucky to have access to so much education? And why am I lucky to have a family that will fund my education? Yet for so many of these people that I'm meeting, education is only for the elite because it's based on fees. And um, that just felt so unfair. And so that's when I started just helping a few girls here and there that I was meeting, um, just really inspired by their stories and their tenacity and their desire also to use their education, not for personal gain, which is what I was taught, but to use their education to somehow make a difference in ending sexual violence because that was their background. And again, I would think if that were my story, would I do the same? And I didn't know. And so I thought, well, let me support them in their dreams and see, um, and see what happens. And uh, that's how Freeland Hope started, just with a few stories of girls who desired to bring freedom to their communities through their education. And as they started to reach uh, academic success, um, I started realizing that my dream was expanding beyond my own insular dream, but it was expanding to support their dreams. And that's what really motivated me to continue building Freeland Hope with the survivors that I was meeting. And you talk about, um, you know, initially in your film career, you would kind of get in and out on stories um, and not just connect. You were kind of hidden behind that camera. But then there is a point where you really do start getting into the stories and connecting with these girls. Um, you you go into the, into, in the book, you go into more detail on some of the girls' stories, and they are hard, hard stories of sexual violence and trauma with girls being raped multiple times. And just horrific lives, um, but you start connecting with those stories, and Mara in particular, in particular, you talk about God told you, invest in Mara, and she will bring liberation to her community, so maybe share just a little bit about that, your own, I don't know, when you started connecting with these, just kind of what that, what that did to you, and your own just, the heart, the hardness when it started reaching, reaching your own soul and just how that started affecting you, I guess. Yeah. So traditionally in filmmaking, you know, we're taught to listen to the story so that we can craft the story and edit it, edit it in a certain way. Um, what we're not taught is how to emotionally engage yeah. and also being Asian American, engaging with our emotions is not probably at the forefront of, of what we lead with. Um, we probably lead more so with the mind space, I think, which is why academia is so important to us. Um, at the same time, I think the, what, what the, the communities have taught me is that emotional engagement and 
experiencing love with and for the communities that you serve is imperative to healing. And so that was the struggle for me of listening to such horrific stories, like you said, and listening to stories of such pain and suffering. What do you do with the pain and suffering? You could either uh, just capture it and document it. And that's what I was doing in my former career, right? Just like, here's a story and presenting it on a silver platter. Um, or I could choose to engage in the story and be a part of it. And that's the work of transitioning from simply capturing a story on film to now creating, co-creating the story of the future that these girls wanted together with them. And that meant uh, going beyond telling the story to actually being a part of the story. You can't do that by putting a camera on it and hiding behind the camera. You have to engage. And I think that's what survivors really taught me is that they had to pull me into their experience and to engage in the suffering, to engage in the pain. And in that way, listening and engaging in the suffering allowed me to experience the abundance of love and the abundance of joy that they have for their community. And that is what our organization has been built on is, is purely love. Our love for the community and our love to seek justice for our community is because of the horrific experiences that we've encountered. Without delving into that, I think our service would be very superficial. And so that's why we try to really get at the heart of it so that we can offer the same healing that we've experienced. Um, and I think that's another thing that survivors taught me is that we can only provide as much healing for others in as much as we've received healing ourselves. Um, otherwise, how do we bring others through healing that we've never been through? And even though it may not look the same, like for me, I'm not a survivor of rape. Um, even though that healing that I might have to go through is different from their healing, we can learn from each other. And I think that's the beauty of advocacy with people who uh, don't have the same backgrounds as you, that you learn from each other's experiences and you gain from each other's gifts and strengths in a way that could build a better world that's free of violence. Yeah, one of, I'm going to read one of your quotes from the book. It said, instead of documenting stories as they were, I began to imagine what it might look like to be part of rewriting their story. And so that just shows that shift that you were talking about from hiding behind that camera to, no, I, I'm going to be used and involved in seeking justice for these girls and kind of that, that switch in your... I guess your passion and how God was going to use you. And I know what you just said, um, the liberation that you found through these girls, though, was not a quick overnight thing. You really share in your book just that struggle mentally um, and especially physically. You really had a breakdown with when you finally started letting these stories sink in and what do you do with that? Um, and this was a long process for you to just figure out how to how to let your own healing happen with these girls because um, like you said you were not you've not been a victim of rape or anything near as hard as these girls but it's still um you know just i've worked a little bit i've been to uganda i've been to nicaragua and worked with victims of sex, tra sex trafficking and it's like it's really hard when you let those stories in um and how they can just it's, it's hard on so many levels. I mean, you share questioning God and where is God and all this. So maybe just share a little bit of that process because I really felt you there of when you were like, God is silent. Where is God? Like he's not here for these girls. Um, and just how much you wrestled with that. Um, maybe share a little of that because I could definitely relate. And I talked with my daughter also who's been worked with girls in other countries. And she, we, we talk about that often, just like, God, you're leaving these girls. How can you say God is good and God is love and this is happening? Yeah. So the story of my burnout is definitely the crux of my work where I was um, only three years into the work. I was 24 at the time. And I was working day and night trying to put perpetrators in prison, trying to support these girls from um, hurting themselves or from suicide, trying to find money to fund their education that they desired so much. And, um, you know, I built Freely and Hope with my graduation money of a couple thousand dollars and um, building, building it from scratch scratch, not having any family foundation or any even family support in the very early stages to build it um, was really difficult. And so I felt like I was carrying the burden of the organization on my shoulders. 
and that I was the only one carrying this burden. And with that uh, responsibility, there is a sense of saviorism that comes with that, where it's like, this is my organization, this is my ministry, this is what I'm doing, this is what God has called me to do, to the point where, again, you are doing the work of God without God in it. And that's where um, I completely burned out, where I felt like the violence of the world that I was hearing of uh, day in and day out was a reflection of my failed leadership that I had somehow failed to provide uh, the resources and the money and the opportunities that um, I had set out to do. And so with that, I became extremely ill. I was diagnosed with an unknown virus and uh, hospitalized in Zambia for a few days. And in my illness, it wasn't really the physical illness that was so debilitating, but the uh, spiritual emptiness of not believing that my vocation or my calling was still relevant because I didn't feel one physically strong enough, but also emotionally strong enough to uh, hold all of the burdens that I was hearing. And it was during that time that I was, like you said, questioning God's presence and God's sovereignty, wondering where is God in the midst of pain and poverty and suffering and oppression? Where is God who, uh, who is supposed to be all loving and all gracious and all merciful? Where is God who is supposed to be our protector and our healer? And that's where I really had to sit in the pain and suffering for, for many months to really um, get a grasp of what would eventually, or, or the hope, finding, finding the hope for what might eventually evolve from this. And at the time, I had no sense of hope, to be honest. There were many days where I didn't know if I could continue one or if this work was even worth pursuing, knowing that I may not, I may not achieve it anyway. And again, this is built on a culture of achievement and success seen in a certain light um, or seen as like number. We always like to like put data on everything, like number of girls healed. You're right. You're right. There's no such thing as that, to be honest. Number of of rapists put in prison, the number of um, scholarships provided, right? And so that- data analysis and that achievement of successes based on numbers was really debilitating for me because being a very tiny organization and really operating on my own, it seemed like um, it it just seemed impossible. And I didn't feel that I was worthy of of the vocation that God had called me to. And so it it was in that moment there that I had to recognize that God was not in this in the sky (laughs) that god is not up there and i'm waiting for god's power to rain down on us it's like no god is actually in the voices of survivors god is in the resilience of survivors god is in the subtleties of healing within the survivors that god is in them and god is not through my not just through my work i think that's what i had to recognize in this um kind of undoing the ego and undoing saviorism. If if God is not just through the works of my hands, but God is in the works that we are all putting in, in the works that we're all sowing to build this better world and co-creating together with the survivors that I was working with. And so that's where the stories and the, the perseverance and the tenacity of survivors healed me because I saw them and thought, you know, if they can choose to live into a new day, if they could choose to go to school one more day, and to have hope that their academic success will somehow build into their vocation to end injustice and to seek a better system that will bring freedom for other girls like them, then I can try. Like, I can try to also live into a new day, to try to fight one more day, to try to uh, align my dreams with theirs, to try to use whatever resources I have, um, to provide those as gifts and strengths to the community and to learn, to learn more and more what it looks like to um, be in service together in uh, pursuing this audacious dream of ending sexual violence. There's a scripture um, in Isaiah 61. It's the you know, scripture that we always say of the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor to um, provide freedom for those who are captive. And that scripture goes on to say, then after um, the liberation has come, then God is the one who heals. God is the one who restores beauty for ashes and um, uh, a a crown of beauty instead of ashes. 
And that's also where we see in verse four that we don't often get to that they will be the ones who say they the oppressed, they the ones that were captive, they the ones who were imprisoned, they the ones who uh, had no clothes or had no food to eat. They will be the ones who rebuild, restore and renew places that, that have been devastated by violence. So in recognizing that the scriptural call is not for me, but it's actually for them, then my role has shifted to now leveraging the voices of the poor, of the oppressed, of the marginalized, of the imprisoned, of the, those who were once captive, and leveraging their leadership so that they're the ones who rebuild, restore, and renew places that have been devastated by violence. It's no longer just my call as I initially thought, but it is a collaborative effort that requires all of us, if we um, believe that God is a God of justice, to pursue it together with those who have experienced oppression because they've been so close to it. They only have the solutions as to how it could be ended. That's so powerful. Gosh, I kind of just like (laughs) out of body because I felt like I was watching you preach here because that is so powerful. I mean, especially we hear so much of the white saviorism and you know, going on these mission trips, thinking we're the saviors and you just, what you just said totally realigns that with how we need to be looking at our role and God's role. And we are not God. And you share so many moments of kind of that revelation for you in the book. Um, And one, when one of the girls shares it with you that she had been raped again, and all she wanted from you was just to hug her. Whereas you felt like, okay, we got to figure out like, where were you? How do we get just like, and that was just a small example, but a perfect example of how we, what we think our role is versus God's role in that and being there for them. And I love that part of your organization because you're very intentional now that these women that are in the program, you don't call them survivors, you call them scholars, that they are the ones leading, that they are the ones telling stories, that they are, they are, like you just said, the ones responsible for, not responsible, but the ones that are bringing the healing and the liberation. Um, Maybe talk just a little bit about the stories, the importance of stories, because these girls are so brave that you talk about and they share their stories and their stories are tools. So if you don't mind, like you go more into detail in the book, but just maybe touch on one of the girls' stories that maybe hit you the most powerful and that you see being used by God just to make make the difference in her community. Yeah, And that's hard so- because, gosh, there's a lot of powerful, like, stories that you share. So I'm sure there's tons of others as well. Yeah, for sure. And um, the stories are all culmination of stories as well, because there have just been so many experiences in my 10 years of working with survivors that have taught me so much. And what I've realized, actually, it's the subtleties, the small stories or seemingly small stories that people may not notice at the forefront are actually the most important. And so one of the ones that I like to tell um, is one of the stories. So I have uh, primarily three women that are captured in the book, whose stories are captured in the book. And as I journey with them, they've taught me different things along my career. And as they've grown in their leadership, then three other girls come alongside. And those three girls are then also evolving based on the original three stories. And so that's kind of this reciprocal effect that we see in our community where telling your story really is the first step to healing not only your own story because then you gain autonomy over your story and you regain the power over your own story that previously the perpetrator might have taken or the culture might have taken or the justice system also might have taken Um, and so in narrating your own story that's how you gain that sense of power and so I also want to be very clear in my book even though the tagline is women uncovering hope in a broken world yes there are many women uncovering hope in a broken world but the book is not simply about uh, a bunch of different women. And that's actually, I was a bit afraid that that subtitle might come across as like, here's a vignette of a woman and another woman and another woman. Um, Cause I've written books like that before actually previously. Um, but this is actually my story and right. the women who have uncovered hope in a broken world for me and right. in the world at large. And so I want to be very careful that as in as much as I'm telling their story, it is through my perspective because it's their story, not mine, but it's how those stories have shaped me and transformed me. And that is really the goal of sharing our story, right? So that I might, so that you might be as trans, so that you might be transformed in as much as I've been transformed in that if I can share how I've transformed through my story, then perhaps you might be bold enough to share your story and how you've been transformed too. And then that's again, that reciprocal effect. And as, um, 
survivors in my journey have really been gracious in, in teaching me how to advocate and teaching me how to use language in a way that's empowering and uplifting and how to share stories um, with them. Because many times as well, um, you know, I'm the one hired to speak at this conference. And so what do I do? Like, everything is about them. Even as I've been approached by publishers years ago, they would always ask like, you know, publish a book about your experience. I'm like, it's not my experience, it's theirs. They're the ones that actually pushed me now to this point 10 years later to like, imagine what is my story or to actually reflect on what is my story in the process because it's in tandem with each other that we have come to the sense of understanding and relation and, and inspiration for our community that we see. And one of the girls um, that have really impacted me, she um, had been abused by her stepfather. We see that a lot where uncles and close family members, stepfathers, neighbors often um, because it's easy direct access and usually also in family systems your guard is down and you're around each other more often um, that they're violated by these very close family members and so there was one girl who was uh, violated by her stepfather um, and tried to pursue justice but did not get the support from the justice system as she initially thought and um, she had to go to court day in and day out as as i mean not day in and day out actually because it took years years and years for her to get each court case so it was like one court case here wait another year and then the second court case so it was just a lot of waiting and anticipation but as she would show up in court she would have to face the perpetrator every time and to look him in the eye and to tell the story again and again and again of what happened and one day she came um, to our community meeting where we would uh, meet together periodically and just share together. And this is when we were fairly new. I think we were like four or five years old at that point. And we had um, just 10 girls at the time in Kenya. And she had just come also from a recent court case experience. And um, again, the waiting period of not knowing what's going to be the outcome of this court case. And she came in, she was looking super cute with this flowery cardigan and this skirt. And so we went around and we shared our highlights for the week. And interestingly, she did not share anything about the court case, but she shared that her highlight of the week was that day because she felt bold enough to wear a skirt and to show up in a skirt. And that just gave her all the power because now she can choose that she will wear whatever the hell she wants to wear, not being dictated, not being shamed, not being blamed for what were you wearing at the time of the rape? Where were you at the time of the rape? Uh, what did you do to seduce him at the time of the rape, right? It's about none of that. It's about reclaiming your body and reclaiming how you show up in the world, even if it's by wearing a skirt that puts you, put her in such a powerful stance um, against the perpetrator. And that was just such a beautiful moment where she recognized that as her liberation, choosing to wear a skirt. And it's not just that physical act, right? It's also the, um, I think, emotional strength and the uh, shift from instead of believing the lies that culture tells me and the believing the blaming that happens as well, um, that she would choose to reclaim it and to wear whatever she wanted to wear. And so that just meant so much to me. And I actually try to remember that every day when I put clothes on. It's like, well, how can I put my clothes on to show up in the world in a way that uh, regains power over the ways that patriarchy has tried to take it from me. Yeah, that's so powerful. And how, once again, our stories are so intertwined and our liberation is so intertwined with each other. Um, and the book is is beautiful, Nicole. Um, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful in amidst the brokenness because you it's it has pictures of your photographs in it, poetry, the story, your story also intertwined with the girls and how that affected your story and um your book is released september 22nd correct mm -hmm. and um you have a book release party on the 26th and we'll talk about that but before we talk about the release or the release party let's talk a little bit more about freely and hope um how, how many years ago then did you start freely and hope 10 years. This is our 10th wow. anniversary year. Okay. So tell us a little bit about where it is now. It doesn't mean you have to tell us numbers and statistics and all that. Um, but just 
where you're at now, what your mission is, what your focus is, where you serve, um, and then maybe how people can get involved if they want to help um, or give money to it. So yeah, tell us just a little about it. Yeah. So like I said, when Freely and Hope started, we just started with a couple girls. I was paying their own t- their own tuition out of money I was making. I also used to be a wedding photographer, so that paid a lot of the bills in the early days. That that can make some good money for you. Good. It it made some really good money for the organization. So I was just helping um, a couple of girls, but as they went to school, their dreams started to come back and their their alignment of their dreams started to realign with the, the present. It, I think it seemed like such a distant thing that, that that they had desired in the in the for their future. But realizing that could happen here and now allowed the dream to come back as well. And so they would say, "Okay, now that we're in school, now we want to learn um, how to become leaders in our community. Now we want to learn about public speaking. Now we want to learn how to design programs that can end sexual violence and teach children to honor their bodies and to teach ch- teenagers about." Cons- and I'm like, okay, uh, let's figure this out. So right. the organization has definitely evolved simply from giving school fees because I learned very early on that education is not the key. It's one of the keys, but it's not the only key, especially for a survivor. As a survivor goes to school, she also needs safe housing, especially if she lives close to the perpetrator. She also needs uh, um, mental health support. Um, professional mental health support. I believe pastoral care has its place, but together with that, we also need um, mental health professionals to support the trauma, um, the intense trauma that has happened in their lives. Um, And they also need things like transportation because if they don't have money to go to school and they can't walk because they have to take care of their children or take care of whatever um, responsibilities that they have in the home, then that's just going to school is even impossible. So I learned very early on that in addition to school fees that they needed holistic care and that's how our organization has evolved. So now we have a model uh, really designed by the um, intentionality and the wisdom of survivors that uh, we provide holistic education. So that's high school and university, school fees, mental health support, safe housing, health care, um, and a community of belonging to allow them to know we're all in this organization together, whether we've experienced sexual violence firsthand or whether we've been affected by sexual violence in other ways. All of us are here to advocate against sexual violence. The second tier is leadership development. So as our young women grow in their sense of autonomy and their dreams come back to life because of education, then we equip them through leadership skills, which includes um, program design and public speaking and financial management, um, storytelling with dignity. And as they are uh, practicing their leadership, they in within in the insular community they also practice their leadership through what we call storytelling platforms and that's when we go out into the community to schools churches partnering organizations to teach on sexual violence prevention and all of those storytelling platforms are actually designed and initiated by the survivors in our community so if you're in our program you actually have the opportunity to say hey i want to Um, ensure that children understand that they have body autonomy because we grow up believing that it is a a man's right to do whatever they want to us. So I want children to know that they have right over their body, rights over their body. And so we have one program that has been designed for children that teaches them about their body. We have another program for women in prostitution that teaches women that they have options outside of um, prostitution if that's what they choose to do. We have programs for high school students that teach them on consent in um, in a safe space within their school system because it's such a taboo to talk about it. Um, And so all of these programs have been designed, led, and initiated by survivors. And I think that's what makes our program so unique because they are given the opportunity to dream within our organization and we fund that. And so if you would like to be a part of funding those dreams with our survivors, um, you can donate through our website, freelyandhope.org. Um, we are actually inviting more people to become monthly support supporters, giving uh, $25 a month to whatever it is. Um, $25 a month cares for one therapy session. Uh, $50 a month caters for uh, safe housing. I don't know how much you pay rent, but $50 a month is pretty good for us, right? And then $100 a month is high school tuition. 
And then $250 a month is uh, university tuition. So that what the monthly donors do is they actually literally encircle each of our scholars with the holistic support that they need to truly thrive. And so as they thrive, that's when their sense of leadership also disperses to the community so that their leadership goes beyond them. And that's, that's the dream that we have. So your program, you don't sponsor like one, one girl in particular, right? It's not sponsor this child or sponsor this girl. It's just giving to the programs. Just, I'm just clarifying for people that might be interested. Is that correct then? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't do the one-on-one child sponsorship because like I said, it requires a whole bunch of holistic services. And I am wary of a lot of these other uh, scholarship-based organizations that say something like $25 a month can um, uplift a girl out of poverty. Right. And it, it costs a lot more than that, especially right. as we consider costs of professionals and staffing. Um, I really pride myself in my international staff because they are so equipped to deal with the level of trauma that we have in our organization. And at the same time, we also hire a lot of um, survivors of sexual or domestic violence, um, survivors of sexual or domestic violence to lead our programs because we believe that when our girls can see someone who looks like them, someone who has experienced the same trauma that they have in those positions of leadership, that that's also empowering and liberating. And so hiring survivors in our program model is a central part of our work as well. And so... If is if you look at our, it's called the Hope Circle, where you like encircle each scholar. You are part of a tribe of people that are encircling each person together because it's not a one-on-one thing. It requires yeah. a village to yeah. raise one child, and so you are part of that collective village. Yeah, I love that, and that's what I was going to ask you too. If you're if you do are intentional about hiring the the women there and on the spot, and um, yeah, so that's wonderful. And then is is Kenya where you primarily serve? Is that, or where, what regions or countries are you working in? Yeah, so we are also in Zambia, and okay. um, we started in Zambia with just one girl, and this year we decided to expand in Zambia, so now we're funding uh, 10 girls, and okay. we have two graduates from Zambia, so we're growing in Zambia um, a lot exponentially this year, okay. so we really hope that long, longer-term goal is to bring our entire survivor leadership model to any country and adapt it culturally. Yeah. So right now we're kind of learning how do we adapt for Zambian context, take what we've learned in Kenya, adapt it for Zambian context and learn from our community there. Um, so we want to ensure that our model could be replicable, but also adaptable for the cultural context. Okay. And that's what I was going to ask you. You kind of answered it, but like, what is your long-term vision or dream with the organization? What, what do you want to see? Yeah. So in a, Big picture is is in addition to seeing more communities that can implement our survivor leadership trajectory of holistic education, leadership development, and storytelling platforms, we also want to see how we can build stronger systems within organizations, both corporate, uh, governmental, and private institutions to create a system where survivors can be supported fully. So... For example, in Kenya, if you are raped, you have to report to the hospital and to the police. And then you have to ensure that the data from both places are the same so that when you go to the legal system in the the government, that they will actually care for you. However, if that system doesn't completely align or you don't get one authorization from the other, because we've also had experiences where you go to the hospital and they say, okay, we need the police report, go to the police. We need the hospital report. You don't get either because you don't have one. So that system is just so broken and so circular, and especially with lack of access to the locations to go to and lack of trauma-informed training for the people that are receiving the application or giving the application. It's, it's this really difficult workaround cycle that's nearly impossible. And so what we want to do is actually set up a one-stop center. And some countries like Zambia is actually implementing it, um, but we want to figure out a way to privatize the one-stop center so that it can run without... Uh, a government money because we've seen that a lot of times the government running runs out or find a way where the system can actually ensure that the government maintains its commitments for the longer term. So one stop physical center that can provide the legal health, 
uh, police and the academic and the emotional support that they need around it and ensure that everyone within that center is trauma-informed so that the survivor has the best possible experience in doing such a difficult and horrific process of seeking justice um, that we can somehow ensure that they have all the ample support they need in one place so that they don't have to do the workaround and also be rejected by the system. Okay. All right. And folks can find out more on the website give on the website and we'll link that up in the show notes um and we're running out of time here unfortunately but i want to hear about the book launch party on the 26th and can you tell folks a little bit about that because people can sign up to attend that also yeah, so we are celebrating the book launch and also the 10th anniversary of Freely and Hope on okay. September 26th okay. at 7 Pacific Standard Time. And uh, how we're going to celebrate is through some stories of our survivors and our staff. We'll also be joined by performers, including Propaganda, who's a rapper artist, uh, and Kevin Olusala from the acapella group Pentatonix, Melissa Polinar, who's a singer-songwriter, and our very own uh, Freely and Hope alumni. Her name is Jean Nangwala. She is a singer and um, artist in her own right. And so we'll be talking about the different themes of my book. Um, my book covers a lot of juxtapositions where uh, I had to realize that in working in context of oppression, sometimes you have to delve into the suffering and the pain and the grief in order to experience the joy, the love, and the hope that emerges from those very places. And so I'll be talking about some of those themes with the performing artists, and then they'll be performing um, through uh, music and um poetry which will be very exciting and then you'll also get to hear snippets and stories from our survivors from the community as well so that you can see um, the impact of our organization and the impact um, that i hope this book can bring has brought to the community and also can bring to others that are hoping to seek justice in a violent world so i hope that you'll join us Yes, and we will put the link to that as well. And one of the things you just mentioned that poetry would be shared. And like I mentioned before, throughout your book, you share poems that you've written kind of to go along with the themes and the juxtapositions that you mentioned. So I'm going to ask you if you would read one of the poems. There's so many that are powerful, but the one on 65, talking about wounds and your own healing, if you would kind of wrap things up with sharing that poem in particular. I'd love to. I would also love to hear why you picked this poem for me. <laughs> you know, I, I marked several of them. I think it's just, um, you know, the story is about bringing healing to your, the need for healing for yourself. Um, and the line that said, for bringing healing to others, you must, must first attain it yourself. And I think it probably spoke to me too, because I'm in a season of, of a hard season. Um, mm. <laughs> 2020 is a hard year for me. My listeners know my dad died. I've got cancer diagnosis. Mm. And it's, I think as women, we do, we have, we want to just bring this healing to everybody and we want to fix everything. And we sometimes neglect ourselves. Um mm during that and I think it just really spoke to me and like you know what sometimes you got to take a step back and focus on yeah. your own healing before helping others so I think that's why it spoke to me now you're going to make me tear up Nicole yeah, <laughs> thanks for sharing that I think this is the hard work of for us as women is to undo yeah. the things that we've been taught and realize that the same level of care that we provide for others we also deserve it too yeah and it catches up with you and you don't. Um, and we think it's not going to, but it does. Yeah. It does. And I think this is what I've learned in context with survivors as well as like, as I poured out so much love to them, I actually realized that my love was limited, that the level of care that I could provide was so limited. Yeah. And only in delving through the pain and experiencing the suffering and uniting together with the pain and the grief and actually grieving because we're also in a culture that's like, think positively. It's like, yes, think positively, but also grieve when necessary because our world has a lot to grieve right now. Um, to grieve with them and to allow myself to grieve. All of those experiences are necessary so that you can expand in your understanding of what love is and yeah. what joy is and what hope looks like. And so it's this really terrible paradox and terrible juxtaposition of inexperiencing suffering, inexperiencing pain is where you can experience the expansion of joy so that your joy will be even greater than it was before. And I know that to be true in my life and my work. And that's really what I hope for you and for everyone out there listening that 
knowing that the suffering and the grief is, is it's temporary, but it's also deepening your expansion, deepening your ability to feel, but also expanding your ability to receive so much more joy and love for self and for others. Yeah. And the key is, as I'm learning, like you said, to let yourself truly experience that and grieve because it's easy to, it's easy for the moment to just try to like move on and act like you're okay and everything's okay, but it's just, it's not sustainable. So um, I think Mm. that that's why your story is so powerful and we'll speak to a lot of women um, because it is about, you have to feel that and be in it and you can't just slide over. There's not a shortcut through with the mm-hmm. hard stuff at all. So, yeah. 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 All right. Well, let me read this for you. <clears throat> there are wounds that you will never see. Some have turned into scars. Others have disappeared into the night, but most invisible wounds remain there until the wounded one gathers enough courage to shed light into the darkness consuming the soul. This is where healing can begin. Uniting wounded hearts are stories in search of healing. And because I first saw your scars, I began to imagine that maybe healing is available to us all. And as I allowed the stories of healing to enter my wounded heart, I saw it within myself, a different formation, a transformation, a realization that scars are evidence that wounds do heal. And there I understood that you cannot give what you do not have for to bring healing to others. You must first attain it yourself. It's powerful. Okay. I'm going to dry my eyes. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for asking why I picked that. Cause I didn't even dawn. I mean, I know there was a reason even as you were reading it. Cause I think of, I have a huge, like eight inch scar on the back. I don't know, eight inch, seven inch scar on the back of my yeah. arm from a, I I was diagnosed with melanoma this year, so I have a big chunk of skin out of my arm removed, and there's a huge scar left there that I just, as a constant Mm. reminder, and I did not correlate, but I think that's probably why I, part of the reason too, is just those scars Mm. are evidence of the healing, and I needed to hear that as well, so, Nicole, thank you, thank you so much, just for for your voice, your book, your work, Um, I am looking forward to going to the the, the book release party and um, celebration of 10 years of Freely and Hope and looking at how I can partner with you and help you going forward. Yay, thank you so much. I'm just so grateful that you would choose to allow to share space on your platform with me and with our stories because I believe that the more we could really unite and tell these stories, even though they're difficult and they're horrific, that the more we tell it, the more that we can actually seek justice together. And so we appreciate your advocacy with us. Mm-hmm.